everybody! I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean, a.k.a. Shananas. <laughs> Shananas. That's terrible. That's not... We'll work out that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in any case, we remain the Verta guys, and we're checking out the dark side of DC. Please continue to listen, even though I said Shananas. <laughs> we are going to start with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher, as we go on to recap and review some Virgo comics. And today we're looking at Hellblazer number 11. All right, this is by Jamie Delano, art by Richard Pierce Rayner and Mark Buckingham. The cover is by Dave McKeon. Now, Richard Pierce Rayner, I don't really consider him the regular artist on this book, although we did see him last issue. He did Hellblazer number 10, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which was folded into our coverage of a Swamp Thing story arc. But nonetheless, it was it was drawn by Richard Pierce Rayner as well. Well, he's going to be on the book for a couple more issues. So I guess he's the new regular artist for now. Yeah. And inks by Mark Buckingham. That's right. But his apartment's pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. All right. <laughs> Just saying, I bet he's got a pretty nice place. <laughs> that Mark Buckingham. So, you want to talk about this cover by Dave McKeon? Yeah. They are putting the covers in the proper place in the trade paperback now, as of trade paperback number two. Appreciate that. Yeah, in, in TPB number one of Hellboyza, we had to flip to the back if we wanted to see the cover, which often led to, like, episodes in which... Sean had clearly looked in it, and I clearly never had. <laughs> yeah, and it's just easier to follow where the stories break here as well, because it's not just a page of Constantine doing stuff, and then another page of Constantine doing stuff. And then, yeah, now he's doing something completely fucking different. <laughs> yeah, usually on a different continent. <laughs> yeah, now he's drinking in a different city. Yeah. So, uh, the cover has John's face, and superimposed over that, we've got the word Newcastle, and there's a broken blonde doll. Yeah, with one eye. And it also looks like there's torn up pieces of paper surrounding him. Mm-hmm. And he looks kind of ghostly and and ethereal, but that's just the Dave McKeon effect. He's not a ghost. Don't worry, readers. Yeah, but it is kind of a, this is John, he's scary and kind of kind of cool. Check yeah. out this comic book effect. Yeah. And this is a spooky, scary comic book. Like, this issue in particular is really horror-heavy. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, let's go ahead and get into it. On page one, we've got Constantine already noir monologuing. Yes, he is. Like an ancient elephant, I have returned to the place of death. Ten years ago, this graveyard was empty, but it was raining then as well. That's not what he sounds like. It's not what I usually sound like when I try to sound like him, which is also not what he sounds like. Well, yeah. <laughs> I was just emphasizing the noir quality of the dialogue. And then this guy is, is shouting, Down, Satan, you brute! Which I thought is funny, because Satan turns out to be his dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this guy is like, with his thick Irish accent, yeah. offers Constantine some help. Now, this is actually a frame story. We're going to spend most of this issue in a flashback ten years ago in the Newcastle incident. But this is John visiting the site of that incident in the present day. Right. It's a car graveyard now, and it used to be the Casanova Club. 
And he implies that the cars are somehow connected to all the people that died. Yeah, that doesn't really turn out to be true. No, not particularly. But he finds a doll arm in one of the cars, and holding the doll arm seems to sort of trigger his flashback. Yeah. We also see that he's very cynical about the state of England at this time. But that was then, before Thatcher, before the Falklands War, before the country, starving, ate out its own heart, before hell impaled and toasted us, writhing over the roaring fires of our own inadequacies. Then, we were a team. And he introduces the other members of what he has previously called the Newcastle set. Now, we've seen most of these people before in this comic book as ghosts. Right, and some of them we've seen as real live individuals. We definitely saw the deaths of Richie and Gary. There's also Benjamin, Anne-Marie, Frank, and Judith. Yeah, so Frank is intended to be a sort of biker dude. He's the guy with the leather commissar's cap. Judith does tantric yoga. Anne-Marie is described by Constantine as fat 40 and secretly in love with me. Richie, as we saw previously, is a computer freak. We've got Gary Lester, a small-time conjurer who is cracking a beer as they head into this mystery. <laughs> and then there's Benjamin, who Constantine says is 12 years old. He's never drawn to look 12 years old. Yeah, Maybe. I noticed that too. He's as tall as everybody else. Maybe Constantine means that he was a 12-year-old genius, you know, when he was 12 years old. And he's not anymore. And now he's, yeah, now, now he's, he's an, a, an older genius. Now he's a 22-year-old genius. The other thing worth pointing out here is that Judith is carrying a boombox, which is playing David Bowie's Heroes, which might be intended as a shortcut to help you place this story in 1977 or 1978, I think. Okay. And it's obviously a thematic resonance as they're going to go here and try to be heroes as well. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I really just took it as like a, this is what year it is. <laughs> but you're right. It, it might have thematic importance as well. So they come up to the now closed Casanova Club. Oh, and they are here on the recommendation of John's friend, Raymond. Yes. Fan favorite, Raymond who recently met an untimely end as he was beaten to death in a homophobic attack by the Resurrection Crusaders. Right, and that was that was a few issues ago in the present day. Right, yeah. At, at this point in the flashback, he's still alive and well, although he will not actually be appearing. Right. Yeah, so, so they go to this club because its owner, Alex Logue, is into the paranormal, and Raymond has heard reports of paranormal phenomena there in Newcastle. So that is a good place for them to start. And they mentioned that their band Mucus Membrane has played here in the past. Yeah, in fact, that it played its debut here. Oh, I guess uh, the other thing about this page is important is it establishes that Alex Logue is a pervert. Yeah. And quite possibly a child abuser, which we will receive confirmation of a few pages from now yeah so benjamin hears a sound from the basement and they decide to go investigate it yeah and down in the basement there are just piles of body parts and the prose does a really good job here of reinforcing the horror of all this and especially the smell constantine talks about how 
when he was younger, a truck used to go past his house carrying waste animal parts Mm -hmm. from a butcher's shop to a boneyard. And he could never see inside, but the smell was just so thick and heavy that it coated your throat and made you sick for a half hour afterwards. And he talks about how one time he was riding in a bus and was actually able to look down into the truck and it gave him nightmares for a week. Right. So this is also one of those double pages that we've talked about. It's a little better than the structure that we have seen as some of the panels do stretch across both pages. And in later versions of this Later in the issue, we're going to see panels that are uh, sort of cut diagonally so that we can see that the panels extend across the page break. Yeah, in this case, there are three rows of panels, and there's a panel break at the page break for the top two of them. So it's really not until you're reading the third one and you're like, oh, that's one panel across the whole page. I've been reading this whole thing wrong. Ah. <laughs> yeah, and I don't mean to to keep hitting this point about how they consistently mess up these two-page spreads, but but since you brought it up. So, as John recalls the smell of blood and carnage, they encounter a bunch of destroyed bodies in the basement, and that's when we get our title, Newcastle, A Taste of Things to Come. Right. So, no sooner have they seen this big pile of dismembered, torn-apart bodies and witnessed the horror of what's going on in the basement, then something starts happening upstairs. They hear screaming, and John's narration makes it clear that even though they had better investigate the screaming, also they're just terrified to remain in the basement with the corpses, and they all run away. Right. So they get upstairs, and there they find the previously mentioned Astra, who is Alex Logue's daughter. Kind of beatifically dancing in the club on the dance floor here, to the sounds of the cult all being brutally murdered. Yeah, I guess it was recorded somehow? Yeah, maybe by accident? The funny thing is we've seen this before. Back in issue number three, going for it, demons like to listen to human screaming as music. Oh, yeah. But Astra's not a demon. No, she's not. Not yet, anyway. But it struck me as a weird coincidence to have somebody apparently... (laughs) Apparently willfully listening to human screaming and dancing to it. Yeah, that is pretty weird. So they ask her what happened, and she tells them that it was Norful Thing. Right. Now my speculation here is that Norful Thing is probably a combination of her accent, child speak, and the phrase awful thing. It's just a Norful Thing. Oh, Yeah, I didn't put that together. It could just be a collection of syllables to name a demon, because what do you name a demon? But that was my guess. Yeah, well, and we find out that Norful Thing is not exactly a demon. Right. It's a sort of horror of the subconscious constructed by Astra in response to the abuse that she was put through by her father. Right. So as they approach her, she immediately yells that she doesn't want to be touched because she doesn't like it anymore and doesn't want to do it anymore. Gross. And then they manage to calm her down enough that John is able to hypnotize her and get the full story out of her. 
Yeah, and the full story is not a pretty picture. As was alluded to earlier, her father liked to have drug and alcohol-fueled orgies, basically, in the basement of the club after shows. And what the band didn't know until now was that Astra was forced to participate. Right. I gotta say, I know this is a horror comic and it's supposed to be disturbing, but there's a way to do this subtly. And this goes right through subtle and past being explicit and all the way, I think, to shoving it in your face. I mean, a couple of pages ago, John said... Until I saw his little daughter Astra and the way he stroked her while she sat on his fat knee staring like a white-faced doll. That was all we needed to know. That was all we needed to hear to know what was going on. And instead we get, we, we get the scene where she hates being touched, and then the scene where she's hypnotized and just tells what it is bluntly. Yeah, you're right. It, it could be seen as a bit much. At this point, I'm still, I was still pretty absorbed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, on the one hand, it's definitely, in poor taste to abuse this topic as an easy source of drama. On the other hand, like, this is a very horrifying horror comic. Yeah. We're eight pages into it right now, and we've already seen, like, all manner of, you know, scary and disgusting stuff. And for me, I found it compelling. Like, it made me care about what was going on, and it made me want to keep reading and solve the mystery. You know, but at the same time, like in the the other part of my mind was like recognizing that this is that this is really dark and in pretty bad taste. Do you feel like it had to be in order to explain why this is the worst thing that Constantine has seen, why this is the thing that caused this this evil spirit to manifest that? Well, I don't want to say that he couldn't defeat, but that had these dire consequences. Do you think that it had to be something worse than we've seen, worse than the casual evil of the demons that were, you know, coming to Earth to trade on human souls, worse than the excesses of the Damnation Army and the Resurrection Crusade. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a sensible way of looking at it from, like, a storytelling perspective, mm-hmm. is that, you know, this is this is one of the worst events of Constantine's life. Yeah. And what paved the way for that is the just, you know, utter irredeemable darkness of the way that Alex Logue treated his own daughter. Mm-hmm. I just think that the the child sexual abuse could have been alluded to more subtly, and it's not just tasteless, it's kind of artless. Yeah, and, and there's an artlessness to the way that things go forward from here as well. Mm-hmm. When we find out about Norfolk thing... And the demonic summoning that follows. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So while in hypnosis, she discusses the abuse that she went through. She doesn't specifically mention occult stuff. But the art shows us that there was like occult things going on too. And Astra basically made a sort of a psychic cry for help. She thought and thought and thought of the very worst thing she could imagine, and it came to help. Right. She sort of found the power somehow to create this monster just by imagining it, and it is responsible for the pile of dead body parts in the basement. She describes it 
as partly a giant dog and partly a monkey with a purple bum like at the zoo. But it's all insidey out. It's sticky and it's got hearts and bits all dangling off of it. And a huge horrible thingy like a man's. Right. We see the gruesome end of some of the cultists in the art here as this guy gets his head ripped off and thrown across the room. But she also describes that it was basically raping the cultists at the same time. Yeah, and once again, that's like, it's both effectively horrifying, but a little bit artless and really in poor taste as su- just as subject matter for a comic book. Yeah. So... With Astra's story completed, John gets her to go to sleep and starts to make a plan. Yeah, he describes this thing as a terror elemental. And his plan is to raise an even bigger demon in order to kill it. But as he quickly lets on, he's been preparing to raise a demon for months. So we have to question if he has ulterior motives here. Right, this isn't the only indication in this issue that we're going to get that John was kind of looking for an excuse to try a demon summoning. Incidentally, Frank has a simpler plan. He wants to blow up the whole club. Yeah, I wonder if that would work. To kill a Norful thing? Yeah. Did you get the impression that the Norful thing is like as a magical creature can only be destroyed by magical means? Hmm. Not really, no. Okay. It's hard to know exactly what the tolerances of devils are. But it's hard, too, to guess exactly how much experience the Newcastle crew has with these kind of things. If Frank suggests it, I think maybe there's a pretty good chance it would work. Remind me, what killed the four skinheads that were combined into one monster? Oh, that monster had to be... Well, we don't know what it had to be. We don't know what its tolerance was, but it was ripped apart by its own strength. Because Constantine pointed out that the four thugs that had been fused together... Supported different teams. Yeah, they supported different football clubs. That's right. So it tore itself apart. So you could see that as it being destroyed by physical violence, or you could see that as it came to a magical end because it ripped itself apart, and it is a magical creature. Right. Now, another another more metaphysical question that we could ask is, when you kill a demon, does that mean that it goes to hell, in which case it has already demonstrated the ability to get out of hell? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Anyway, as they're coming up with this plan to summon a demon in order to kill the Norful thing, they look around and realize that Benjamin is missing. Right, and he screams from down in the basement, and they run to help. Okay, so this part's really gross. We see the Norful thing for the first time, and it's also clear, although it's not actually shown, it's clear from Ben's dialogue and from art we see of his pants ripped open that he was being raped by the monster. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of excessive. Yeah, definitely excessive. So at this point, Frank manages to rescue Ben from the Norfolk thing by shooting it with a shotgun. But everybody seems to act like it's just obvious that the monster wasn't destroyed in the long term or wasn't Mm -hmm. really harmed in the long term. So that's maybe why I wondered if this is like a thing that requires a magical solution and can't be dealt with by mundane means. Yeah, I see what you mean. It also seems to have some ability to manifest and then disappear. It's sort of unclear in the art whether that's a thing that the characters could clearly see happening. Like, oh, that demon definitely teleported away and didn't die. Mm. Yeah, 
Maybe. Well, so they they rescue Benjamin from the basement, and they go back upstairs again, and now Constantine starts to lay out his plan for summoning the demon. And, yeah, he's really manipulative and a gigantic asshole on this page, didn't you think? Kind of. He definitely takes immediate command of the group and sends some of them off to perform various tasks, but a lot of them he's clearly just getting out of the way. Yeah, so that's part of why I thought he was super manipulative, is that he's giving a lot of the people busy work tasks. Also, he refers to Anne-Marie, who he previously mentioned is secretly in love with him. He refers to her as my girl in an obvious attempt to play on her affections for him. Ah. Yeah, and he also tells somebody to sort out Benjamin, who has just been raped, Mm -hmm. by giving him some vodka. Yeah, give him a vodka or something. Yeah, which is sleazy as fuck. Yeah, so he sends Richie off to take care of Benjamin. He sends Frank off to rig up the gas tank of their truck to blow up if necessary. And he sends Gary Lester to look for a black cat, which we're going to discover in a couple pages he doesn't even need. Yeah. Gary's just trouble to have around. And I kind of, it kind of struck me reading this, like, the first story arc of the series was triggered by Gary's incompetence at magical stuff. Now, part of that is that he had the impulse to act in terms of trying to capture the hunger demon when he wasn't equipped to do it. And another part of that is that he's super high on heroin most of the time. Yeah, it's almost not even his incompetence with magical stuff. It's his competence with magical stuff combined with his incompetence at being a living human being. (laughs) (laughs) Gary's a fuck up in most every respect. But I did wonder, like, if Constantine had respected him and taught him some really useful stuff and sort of taken him under his wing, could Gary have been less of a fuck up? Yeah, well, he'd he'd done good in this issue. I mean, Constantine says, go get a a black cat and I want it alive. And two pages later, there he is with a black cat. (laughs) He delivered. (laughs) Yeah. And I think he says, he says my favorite line of the comic book at that point too, which is when he says, thinks it's a tiger. (laughs) Uh, I'm also fond on this page of this line as John says, who's with me? Frank replies, not me, man. I'm at all my demons at Quezon. Right. I sort of got the idea from somewhere. Maybe it's just the hat that Frank is a cop as well. So between his service in Vietnam and his service as a police officer, if he ever was a police officer, don't quote me on that, he's definitely seen enough horror without having to seek it out for thrills the way that young Constantine is doing here. Yeah, and we don't have a lot of time with these characters, but it is coming through that, like, Gary is slightly unreliable and Constantine doesn't trust him with anything serious. Frank is definitely the pragmatist of the group. Yeah, that's true. So, having sent everybody off, he goes off with Judith to prepare themselves. Did we mention that Anne-Marie is going upstairs to watch Astra? No, we didn't, but that's important. Yeah, he says they're going to put Anne-Marie in a protection circle with Astra, and as long as they stay there, they should be fine. Right. And then he goes off to tantrically prepare with Judith. Right. So, necessary or not... John and Judith marshal their magical power by having some sex. Yeah, and she says, this is where the closest anybody gets to calling him out, when she says, this really turns you on, doesn't it? And I don't think she's talking about the sex. I think she's talking about the fact that they're about to summon a demon. Constantine replies, I wouldn't do it if it didn't. 
Yeah. Yeah, and he's something of an adrenaline junkie, I think we know from experience with his character. So, looks like they're getting ready to perform the ritual, just the two of them, when Gaz shows up with what has to be the worst drawn cat I think I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, Sam Keith, clearly not at work on this issue. I mean, you gotta keep people posted on where they can find good drawings of cats. Where they should not look. That is what I see as the Vertigai's mandate. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna explore the the archives of Vertigo comics for good and bad drawings of cats. We are the Kelly Blue Book of cat drawings. <laughs> yes, that's us. Yeah, so he's just got like a a bag here with a with a paw coming out of it, and even the paw doesn't look that great. Right. Yeah, the artist has contrived so that all they have to draw of the cat is one paw, and then. They kind of fucked that up. That's like the opposite of the Rob Liefeld strategy for drawing. He only drew a foot. <laughs> he only drew the foot. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, they do a freaky ritual with all sorts of freaky hell ingredients. And it just really reinforces that, like, this is some shit they should probably not be doing. Probably worth noting that on a number of occasions throughout this ritual, he calls the name of the demon that he's trying to summon, Sagatana. When I first saw that word, I thought it was, like, an alternate etymology, but, you know, related word to Satan. Oh, right. Like, the name that he's saying is uh, Satan. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> like a like a backwards Pink Floyd album. And the first is sitting in hell going, Enunciate, John! <laughs> so they complete the ritual, and it seems, at first, that nothing has happened. Good show. Shame about the punchline. Yeah, and Gaz suggests maybe he better go get another cat. Right, it might have worked better with the sacrifice. Which, actually, this is tying into another joke from earlier in the series, when John made a sacrifice to summon... What was his name? The Lord of the Demon Financiers. Was it Beelzebub? I think that might be right. No, it's Mammon. Mammon. Yeah, yeah when, he made, when he made the ritual to summon Mammon and he refused to use a cat and Mammon refused to show up in person and send his butler because you didn't use the cats. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, instead of a cat, he just says something like, Mammon, you great ball of pus. Come out here. I'd like a word with you. <laughs> what a dick. Yeah, so they perform the ritual a second time, also to no effect. Do they perform it a second time? Oh, I see. Yeah, he does do a little bit something more. I don't know if he repeats the entire ritual. And then here, Judith suggests that the Grimorium Verum that Benjamin sold Constantine was not worth the money. Little sod, wait till I get my hands on him. 200 quid that cost. And then Judith replies with, I think, a very on-point line. Don't be too upset. I expect you'll get to meet a real demon one day. Right. Yeah, because you're such a prick. And I also like this line, as Gary suggests, looks like we'll have to let old freewheeling Frank shoot it then. I'm not sure I got that. <laughs> Just that, like, Frank killing it with mundane means was their alternate, and I also really like that he's freewheeling Frank. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I guess I... Maybe I thought the word freewheeling had some kind of, like, deeper meaning that I wasn't picking up on. Oh, okay. Sort of went right over it. But, nonetheless, meanwhile, upstairs, Anne-Marie and Astra are safe in the protection circle... When the demon appears to them in the form of Constantine. And fake John pulls Anne-Marie into an embrace. 
yeah, the demon is exploiting Anne-Marie's love for Constantine here. And then, okay, so he's got like a pustule on his shoulder? Yeah, it looks like he's covered with them. And so as soon as she hugs him, he just explodes grossness from his pustules all over her. Yeah, and burns the shit out of her face. And the demon says, laughing at her, You're spoiled! Run now! Get thee to a nunnery! Right, now that's a line from Hamlet. Yes. And And I've never quite understood it, but apparently the nunnery in that line is not a nunnery, but a whorehouse? Oh! A little bit of Shakespearean double entendre there. Right. Well, yeah, in the scene, Hamlet is accusing Ophelia of being a whore, basically, and says, get thee to a nunnery, which is either like a... Like, go to a nunnery and be chased now. Or go to a whorehouse because you're a whore. Right. Either way. He's just generally being a dick. Yeah. And the double entendre figures into that. But here, it's a literally precognizant line as Anne-Marie will become a nun later. Right, but first, she'll jump out of a second or third story window. Yeah. Back in the basement, John is trying the ritual again. When Astra comes downstairs. John says that he wasn't calling her, and she should get out of here because it's not safe. But she ends up summoning the Norfolk thing. But first she says, you called me, I heard you call me. Oh, yeah. That's going to be important. Yeah, so... The Norfolk thing appears, bursting through the floor of the basement. I kind of wonder if this is like a Final Fantasy thing. Like, every time you summon a freak, it comes through the same hole in the ground. (laughs) Like, this basement floor can be repaired very quickly. Well, in any case, the art here of Astra's face, as she's calling it, and then the monster's appearance is actually pretty good. I haven't mentioned this before, but I also really like the way in this issue that Constantine is drawn in a way that makes it quite evident that he's a younger version. Mm -hmm. So now Astra is in the circle, and the Norfolk thing is in the circle, the circle that they laid down to bind the demon that John was trying to summon. And the adults basically know that they can't go in there to help her because they'll break the circle and the Norfolk thing will get out. And they're all pretty sure that she's about to be eaten by that monster. Yeah, and John gives a noirish monologue in his narration about fear and helplessness as Astra kills the Norfolk thing. Right. Pulling its head off in a single move. She goes up as if to hug it and just rips the head right off and that kills it. So maybe a mundane means of killing it would kill it? (laughs) A six-year-old girl shouldn't be able to rip a demon's head off? But the head coming off definitely killed it. Well, and once again, we got to go back to this same discussion as before of, like, the use of Astra as a character and all the issues of child abuse that they touch on are really exploitative, but at the same time, this is so effective. Like, it's still, like, super scary and still has me, like, turning pages, you know? This is a terrifying moment when Astra pulls the head off of this big monster and turns around, like, brandishing the head, and we realize that's not a little girl anymore. Right, so it's a very scary moment as they all think that she's about to be killed, and it gets even worse as she turns the tables on the situation. Right. So, John quickly realizes that the demon has possessed Astra. Technically, we already knew that that was going to happen. It was alluded to in earlier issues 
when they would talk about the Newcastle incident. And the demon in Astra tells how it was not compelled by Constantine's ritual. It didn't have to obey any of his requirements, and yet it did do exactly what he said. Did I not come, although you could not make me? Did I not assume a human form, fair and agreeable, without noise or inconvenience? Did I not dispatch this mad, corrupt deformity, although I owed your impotent antique magic no allegiance whatsoever? Yeah, and you sort of wonder, like, how much of this, you know, it says it didn't have to obey, nonetheless it did all this stuff. It, it makes you wonder if maybe the ritual did have some efficacy. Nonetheless, it is clear that John cannot order the demon to leave the girl's body, and that is because he does not know its name. Right. Now, we have recently in the pages of Hellblazer found out the name of this demon. Right. This demon is Nurgle. Yeah, a recurring problem for Constantine, and one who has, on a number of occasions, taunted him about his history in Newcastle with taunts that he's sort of just figured out why they make sense. And although he says he doesn't have to, Nurgle nonetheless leaves Astra's body. She vomits out the form of the demon. And he says, Nurgle says he's going to take the child with him to hell to ease me through eternity. Now, here we have most of a page dedicated to the appearance of Nurgle. And it's a weird-looking creature. Not the same Nurgle that we know from earlier in the series. There's kind of a bunch of brutish men slapped together, along with the head of a fly invoking the Nemeth demon, the hunger demon from the first arc. As well, in the back of this giant demon body is what appears to be a giant Constantine. Yeah, there's also a dinosaur skull. I think it's like a horse skull. A horse skull? It's scary looking. Yeah. Yeah, I wondered if, like, these various faces that are sticking out of this creature are supposed to all be people who are connected with the plot somehow. Maybe they're cultists. Maybe one of them is Alex Logue. Right. Not sure. In any case, as much as he's been an asshole this entire issue, Constantine quickly offers to sacrifice himself if the demon will let Astra go. Right. Now, Nurgle has come to John's summons even though he didn't have to because Sagatan is not his name. John failed to name him. And since he did what John asked, he says that now he gets a fee and he's going to take Astra. But John offers himself in her place. Yeah, unfortunately, Nurgle explains that John and everyone else connected with the ritual already belongs to him. You? No, you are mine already and your friends. Fresh blooms to be anticipated, plucked according to my whim. I want her now. There is no negotiation. Although as a special dispensation, if you insist, I give you leave. Accompany her below. So basically, John is going to be able to escort Astra to the gates of hell. And so they step into hell. Yeah, they do that, and the art of hell is super fucking batshit crazy looking. You know, we've seen hell portrayed before in the pages of this comic book. And it has always looked effectively scary, but it has never looked quite as, like, bizarro weird as it does in this particular rendering. Yeah, the gates of hell are like a giant mouth, and beyond that, more mouths. There's a fish eating a dude, there's a snake eating a dude. Here's a giant mouth that a bunch of monsters seem to be pouring out of, and it's all done in these bright pinks and oranges. Yeah. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the rest of the Newcastle crew is getting ready to... 
burn the club down. Do it, Frank. Are you sure? Just do it. He's not coming out. And in hell, Constantine decides he's not going in. He loses his nerve and pulls out his blasting wand to try to fight their way out. Yeah, and he basically says that it's impossible for anyone to willingly walk through the gates of hell. But before he can do anything with his blasting rod, it turns into a snake in his hand. Yep. Now, I didn't quite understand this, but is this as a result of the fact that the club is burning down? He says it's nothing to do with me, but the universe begins to buck and quake around us. Not sure. That is shown over a panel of these sort of giant jaws snapping shut on them, so I just wondered if, like, the gateway that Nurgle opened was closing. If hell was closing up to seal them in. I see. Well, so in previous issues, Nurgle has talked about this incident and implied that Constantine foiled him somehow. Well, when he visited John in the hospital, he said something about himself sort of chastening the vanity of a fool. Mm. By defeating Constantine on this occasion. Oh, okay. So he was saying that he was he was the victor in their previous encounter. That's the impression I got. Now, I don't know if Nurgle is involved in the Brujeria incident, which is a thing that happened in Swamp Thing, and it's one of John's big successes against Hell in the past. Oh, that's the Invunch, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a different... That's a different situation. But anyway, something seems to happen to the portal to Hell that leads to John being able to escape, and he tries to rescue Astra as well. He convinces her to run, and they bolt for the gate, holding hands. But when he emerges, he only has Astra's severed arm. Ugh. That's pretty gross. But it brings us back to the doll arm in the in the frame scene, and why that reminded John of the story. Yeah, and it's an effective way for the magnitude of John's failure to hit him as he makes it all the way back thinking that he's got Astra right behind him and he's only got the hand he was holding. Nurgle promises that he's going to get every one of them in the course of time. Weep now, children. Rent and tear your hair. Remember, hell is your eventual home. Consider this a taste of things to come. And with that, we turn the page and we are back in the present. And we now see... John's companions from the Newcastle set in the way that they're so familiar to us. A ghostly nun, a ghostly biker, and ghostly visions of Gaz and Benjamin as well. Still, we all make mistakes, don't we? Narrates Constantine. Even demons. The only difference is I've paid for mine. Two years in Ravenscar Secure Facility for the Dangerously Deranged. We all paid. He goes on to explain how each member of the Newcastle set was never the same after this incident. But, like I say, we all make mistakes, and the demons was finally telling me his name. Nurgle. This is where we started it, and this is where it'll finish. This is the killing ground where I take my revenge, just as soon as I work out exactly how. Yeah, so that's it. Now armed with Nurgle's name, and as the last surviving member of this group of people that encountered him in 1978 or so, John is preparing to take his revenge. Right, hoping to get one over on Nurgle at long last. To win some justice for the times that Nurgle has been a problem for him recently, as well as his first and most horrible victory. So what did you think of this issue? A bunch of things. 
a big one is that, again, not to beat it to death, but it goes into some really extreme subject matter, and it does so with a minimum of subtlety. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I had basically heard, like, the loose story of Astra. I think it's in the TV pilot. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, but, like, I mean, the extent of the abuse that she went through, I don't remember if that was mentioned at all. Certainly not in as graphic a detail as we get here. Yeah, I wonder if... I mean, it's certainly exploitative Mm -hmm. to use this subject matter as part of, like, this kind of thriller horror comic. Yeah. You know? Even though it's effective. I wonder, though, if the sort of grimy feeling <laughs> that it that it leaves you with as a reader is part of part of the intentional effect of, mm-hmm. of what the writer is doing. I mean, obviously, this is this is an adult horror comic. Yes, you know, and as we've said before, part of adult horror is that terrifying and awful things from real life play a role in the supernatural stuff that unfolds. Yeah, that's what makes it sophisticated horror, is that there's an element of social commentary, social satire, real-life horror. It's not just John Constantine versus demons. Right, exactly. And it isn't a clean story with nice, tidy, happy endings, and it doesn't leave you feeling clean when when you finish reading it. No, that's true. At the same time... It does veer into insensitive territory the way that it just brazenly uses child rape as the basis for its plotline and for its drama. Yeah. And this is a story where John completely fails and Astra is dragged into hell despite being fundamentally an innocent. That's already pretty dark. Now, it's not realistic, so to speak, but... In a way, I feel like it didn't need it didn't need darkening added. <laughs> We've described this comic as deliberately lurid before. Yes, and it felt a little ham-handed. The way that a little slapdash, the way that the abuse stuff was all info dumped in the first three pages of the comic. Right, you thought that it was clumsy storytelling. Yeah, it's added in a way where it's almost unnecessary to the story, on top of which it's added very bluntly and very fast. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Overall, I would still say that I rank this as a pretty effective issue of Hellblazer. You know, we've had a couple of issues, particularly the Vietnam issue, that were quite boring. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that issue had a rape scene in it, yeah, a gratuitous more, rape scene in it. Yeah, yeah, a much more a much more explicit and gratuitous rape scene, and it was still boring, you know. Yeah. So while this issue is sort of disgusting and sort of unsophisticated in its storytelling, it nonetheless was to me a compelling read. I'll give you that it's effectively scary, and it's effective as a worst moment for Constantine, a lowest ebb for him, something that he's always going to remember as horrifying, even by his standards. Yeah. So the issue pays off in terms of explaining why this is such a dark incident, not only for him, but for 
everyone who's heard of it, you know, all the yeah. all the authority figures who know about it, it's rightly looked upon as this huge tragedy. Where maybe this issue doesn't pay off is by giving us a, you know, complex, well-structured story that answers all of these loose ends that have been hanging. Mm. Okay. I will say that there's sort of a recurring theme in this book that human evil supports and opens the door to supernatural evil. And so that's something we definitely see again here through Alex Logue. Yeah, that's right. For Mm. what he does, opening the way for the Norfolk thing. And as well, John's vanity and poor judgment lets Nurgle in. Yeah, yeah, John is a great big asshole. (laughs) (laughs) This whole issue. And, you know, he and other people end up paying for it. Yeah. Uh, As for Alex Logue, I'm glad that piece of shit got his comeuppance. (laughs) That <laughs> couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Do you think this story was the right length? Do you think that one issue was the right length for it? I know that it could be a problem for them, what with Constantine guesting in Swamp Thing to drag a flashback out over two issues, but do you think it would have served better in that format? I don't know. I think that the one issue length of this story sort of serves its strengths and weaknesses Okay, pretty well. You know, it, it's a little bit sloppy, And over two issues, it might have been less so. Mm -hmm. But the biggest strength that this story has going for it is that it's a page turner. It has momentum. It keeps you hooked and and you care, you know? Yeah. And the more space that you give it to lose traction, you know, the more you kind of lose that urgency. Not to mention having a one-month wait halfway through the story. Well, yeah, that too. Right, you would need an effective cliffhanger halfway through it, and probably what would end up happening is that your second issue would be mostly filling time in between the cliffhanger and the resolution. Right. So, yeah, I I mean, you, you have the possible added benefit of the storytelling getting a little less sloppy and making a little bit more sense if you play it out over two issues. But, no, I really think that the greatest strength that this very flawed issue has going for it is its momentum. So I agree that it's got good pace, and I like iconic one-issue stories, which I think this aims to be being one of the essential incidents in John's history as a character. I do think that perhaps some of the hurried exposition in the early part of the issue could have been ameliorated by a longer format, and as well we just might get some more time to get used to the Newcastle crew and know who they are as characters going into this story. Yeah, you know, it could be done well as a two-issue story, for sure. Mm -hmm. And now it's time for a little segment I like to call, Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. Right. This week, Sean is going to be reading Flinch, issue number one, published by Vertigo Comics in 1999. All right. Okay, so Sean just read Flinch, issue number one. Now, Flinch was an anthology comic book with basically no unifying theme besides that all the stories are horror. And issue number one had three stories. All right, the first story is Rocket Man by Richard Bruning with our fight Jim Lee. And this is kind of a superhero parody. 
I guess in the process of talking about stories this short, we're basically going to have to spoil the stories that are in Flinch number one. Yeah, this is basically a story about a, a would-be Tony Stark type who has ruined his whole family in his quest to create a working rocket suit and his fantasy that it has worked after he accidentally blows himself and his entire family up. Right. So he activates the jetpack machine that he's made, and we see him take off into what I guess we have to assume is, like, heaven, while we then see some police who reveal that he's dead and he's blown up the rest of his family. It's definitely mean-spirited. <laughs> um, I, well, the one thing I, I will say is, though, that the Jim Lee art actually works for it because he draws superheroes and he draws this guy's costume exactly like you would expect a cool new guy in a rocket suit to look like. Yeah, there's really not a lot to this story besides the simple fact of, like, the writing is subverting the Jim Lee art. Yeah. And it does that. <laughs> you know, for as far as that takes it, that works. Yeah, uh, so then we have Nice Neighborhood. Written by Jen Van Meter with art by Frank Quitely. Yeah, so this is a story where we have a girl gang kind of running around in what we're told is a bad neighborhood. And we don't see their opponents for quite some time. But we know that there's people that they're afraid of who are trafficking in drugs. And they're not really... I, I call them a gang. They're not, like, trying to do crime or anything. They're just hiding out, basically trying to survive. And it turns out that... The gangs are all gangs of really old men who have gotten high on this, like, super Viagra drug, and it, it makes them crazy rapists. And at some point, it's implied that they got rid of all the, all the women over a certain age and all the men below a certain age by instituting a massive draft and war by their voting power. Yeah, the satire here is pretty, pretty on-the-nose ridiculous. Yeah, but but that is probably the story that I enjoyed the most because it has a bit of a satirical bite and because it plays out its reveal effectively. Yeah, and then story number three is Wolf Girl Eats, written by Bruce Jones with art by Richard Corbin. Yeah, so this is about a guy who's like number two in a cult. There's this charismatic preacher guy and they're driving around the back of beyond looking for little tiny towns to preach in. And then they encounter one that has a wolf girl. And apparently the wolf girl is not even really a wolf girl, just a waitress disguised as a wolf girl. But she's so tempting to the priest that he tries to, like, go and, and have sex with her. And the young guy sneaks in to stop him from doing that. And they fight and stab each other. <laughs> yeah. I thought the third story was a pretty run-of-the-mill, boring soapboxy kind of tale about the hypocrisy of religion. Mm. It's very self-indulgent, and it would probably have been a better story with about half as much narration. Yeah, it just, you know, the writer clearly feels very strongly and that he's being very artistic, you know, with this tale of religious hypocrisy. You know, he thought he really had something to say, and there's just nothing to make this third piece memorable or interesting at all, really. Right. To be honest, I wasn't familiar with any of the writers in this issue, mm -hmm. but obviously I know who Jim Lee is and who Frank Quitely is. Right. And, you know, coincidentally, those are guys who are both well-known for runs on X-Men. 
Yeah, that's true. Jim Lee was the artist on Adjectiveless X-Men in 1991 who, well, he had been doing art for Uncanny for a couple of years before that, but he was responsible for redesigns of the whole the whole X-Men cast and was the like flagship artist on the new flagship series. And Frank Quitely was known for teaming up with Grant Morrison for most of the issues of New X-Men, mm-hmm. which launched in 2001. Right. So yeah, that's kind of a funny coincidence. That hadn't even happened yet when this issue came out. Uh, that's true. So Quitely maybe wasn't quite as well known as a mainstream comics artist at that time. Right. And I think that his work was very effective here. You know, uh, Frank Quitely has a way of drawing that is, you know, comic booky and actiony and exciting, but at the same time really shows his characters as normal human people mm. with, like, flaws and foibles. So I don't usually care that much for Frank Quitely art. He draws everything as kind of grubby. I never want to touch anything that he's drawn. <laughs> Here, it kind of works because it sells the joke that these old guys that are chasing people around, like, and, and it's, it's it's rape gangs, that's a terrifying topic, but it plays as comedy because they're not just, like, old guys, they're, like, ridiculously old guys. They're comical. Right, and, yeah, and they have, like, the, like, funny, like, old man hats and the, you know, the, the fashion of old men. Yeah. They wear, like, tweed and they at one point they hit people with their canes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I didn't know any of the writers. I was I wasn't familiar with any of the writers on this issue, but I did know the artists of the first two stories, and I thought that the I thought that the art really made those two stories work. Mm-hmm. So what did you think? Well, it was fine, I guess. I mean, I guess if I had one big complaint aside from the third story being the longest and also the least interesting story, it would probably be that the stories just don't have room to breathe. Okay, so you don't really think that this format works. Right. As an anthology, like, you look at both of the first two stories, but especially Rocket Man, and it's one joke. Because that's what you have time for in eight pages. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I was actually about to say that as much as these three stories might not be the strongest. I thought that the concept was pretty cool. But but I do think you have a point in terms of, like, does, you know, one eight-page story and two seven-page stories really fit, or do they really fit in a single book? And Yeah, now, admittedly, anthology horror comic isn't my bag anyway, but single-issue stories maybe would work better. Yeah, or even if they just split them in half. You mean half-issues? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I devote each issue to two stories instead of three. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, A plus X works fine. What? A plus X was the Avengers X-Men team-up book that ran for, I think, 18 issues after Avengers vs. X-Men. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was half-issue stories. I never I never read that one. Kind of comic, uh, not just comic book, but often comedic vignettes involving an X-Men teaming up with an Avenger to have a little adventure. Sounds like fun. To have a little adventure, not like a baby Avenger. Not like the the Scarlet Witch's kids. Alright, guys. Well, thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Um, Yeah, I I think for me, me it's a concept that works. Maybe it'd be better if they were, you know, a little bit better curated. 
these mm. three stories were not super great and maybe not the best foot to put forward as a first issue for this series. But I kind of like the concept of, you know, shorter horror stories that don't have any continuity, you know, no big overarching story, just a title to to showcase some interesting talent and, you know, do some fun short horror stories. Right. But I, I do agree with your critique that maybe it would be better if they could be a little bit longer than eight pages each. Hmm. All right. Although, you know, that Wolf Girl Eats story, I would have been just fine with that at four pages. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, that's it for Hellblazer number 11. Uh, what do we have coming up next? Well, when we come back to Hellblazer, we'll get to John's revenge on Nurgle and Nurgle's revenge on John. Remember, he's pretty pissed that John messed up his give birth to an evil messiah plan back in Swamp Thing and in Hellblazer number 10. That's right. But before that, we're going to hit Preacher as Preacher hits San Francisco to visit Cassidy's girlfriend. This storyline is known as The Hunters for no reason. <laughs> right. Join us next week. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website at vertiguys.bluebury.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We got lots more episodes and show notes on every episode. You can also reach us on Twitter at vertiguys or on Gmail, vertiguys at gmail.com. Feel free to hit us up with questions, suggestions, or if you just want to talk about these comic books we're covering. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, if you want to subscribe on iTunes or write us a review, we'd love that. That'd be really helpful for us. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, guys.